Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 570. My advice is don't be a lemming. Don't worry about what other people think and don't necessarily always believe the hype. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. I'll never worry again about having a dead battery with my NOCO Genius Boost Jump Starter. This compact tool fits in my glove box and features rechargeable lithium battery technology that'll jumpstart a dead battery in my car, boat, truck, or RV. The Genius Boost features built-in spark-proof technology and reverse polarity protection to safely jumpstart any of my vehicles. The compact, ergonomically designed clamps are built from solid copper for maximum conductivity. There's a built-in ultrabite dual LED flashlight with seven modes, including an SOS and emergency strobe. I use my Genius Boost Jump Starter to charge my phone, tablet, and laptop while I'm on the road or if the power goes out in my home. The unit itself is easily rechargeable in my vehicle. The Genius Boost from NOCO is the ultimate emergency tool that's safe and easy to use. Quality design, state-of-the-art technology from NOCO, the battery car source since 1914. I've got one in each of my vehicles. Get yours at GeniusChargers.com. Are you looking for a way to get your products or services into the ears of thousands of automotive enthusiasts around the globe? I can help. This is Mark Green here at Cars Yeah, and I'd be honored to be an influencer and ambassador for your brand in a unique and personal way. Five days a week, thousands of subscribers and listeners enjoy the Cars Yeah podcast and website. Contact me today and I'll show you how at mark at carsyeah.com or connect with me through the Cars Yeah website at carsyeah.com. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, all the way from Copenhagen, Peter Larson. Peter, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Well, I'm not in reverse, so <laughs> I think I am. All right, good to hear. Let's shift up. Let's do it. Born in 1954, Peter Larson has been a lifelong gearhead. He lives in Copenhagen, as I mentioned, and is currently writing a book about Joseph. Is it pronounced Fagoni? Figoni, Figoni. If you want to pronounce it in <laughs> French, but he he was Italian, so uh, uh, Figoni. Figoni. I knew you were going to do that much better than I could. He serves as a Pebble Beach class judge, and he also judges at the Concorde d'Elegance at Chantilly outside Paris and Schlossdijk in Germany. He gets around. Peter has a wide taste in cars, having owned automobiles as varied as a Bizzarini a Fossil Vega, a Duesenberg Model J, and a number of Maseratis, including two Ghiblis and a 5000 GT, one of my favorites. His enduring fascination has been with French cars in general, and Tabolago in particular, including ownership of two T26 Grand Sports. Peter, I have told our listeners just a tiny bit about you. Would you take a brief moment to share maybe a little bit more about your career and, of course, your passion for automobiles? Uh, well, as Charles Dickens would have said, uh, I was born <laughs> and I, you know, ended up going to school. I got my PhD in uh, English linguistics and semiotics. I went to Brown University on a Fulbright scholarship. Nice. 
And by a series of fluke circumstances, I actually ended up spending 25 years in the music business, Hmm. which was good while it lasted. But as I'm sure you know, it was the first business to be completely impacted by the Internet. So when the music died, I um, went back to my original schooling and I founded a translation company with my partner. Wow. As I'm lucky enough to be bilingual in both Danish and English. Wow. And it's doing well. We have more work than we can handle. But the cars have always been there from the very beginning. Well, that's why we're here today to talk about cars. And Brown University, I was just there. My son graduated from RISD a few weeks ago. So, oh, uh, yes, yep. Rhode, Island, Rhode Island School of Design. That's right. Yes, I remember that very well. Yeah, and Brown University took many of his courses up there as well. Beautiful campus, yeah. beautiful school. Yeah, so yeah. very, very cool. Well, as we continue on your journey, I always like to start with a success quote. This is some kind of saying that's been instrumental in forming your life and your success. And I always like to say it's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars, yeah? So, Peter, take the wheel. Well, I don't know if it was Mae West who said this. But too much of a good thing is never enough. (laughs) And by that, I mean that I can wallow in cars all day long. When we go to Monterey, I mean, the, the, the Monterey week is the most overwhelming series of events in the world. I mean, you, you go there and you plan your trip like you're slicing a salami and you double book and you can't even manage to attend everything. Yep. But I'm ODing on cars six days in a row. Yep. But on the days leading up to the Concours, we visit car museums. And on the Monday after the Concours Sunday, we've arranged to see even more car museums or visit collections before we fly back to Denmark. It's just never enough. I enjoy that immensely. I think I have a very varied taste in cars. I've had French cars from the 40s and 50s and Italians from the 50s, 60s and 90s. I like to buy turbos, which nobody else does. <laughs> we currently have a 19, 1991 Maserati Shamal, which is just an incredible go-kart for the road. It's got 350 horsepower and no electronic nannies and stuff like that. So you pay attention to what you're doing, but it's so much fun. Yes, I'm interested in a lot of different things. I also like some of the 70s uh, sort of crazy cars like the George Barris Customs and um, stuff like that. I really have a Catholic taste in cars. Yes, most definitely. When I look at the list of vehicles you've owned and been around and seen some of the pictures you've sent me, uh, that is absolutely true. I've never understood those people. This is not a criticism. I just don't understand it. Uh, the people who sort of focus on one make and model all their lives and sort of spend 30 years polishing the same taillight. There's just too much out there that's, that's fantastic and cool. I mean, I can appreciate a Duesenberg or a Hispano Suiza or a Delahaye or a compressor Mercedes, although one of my friends says that they always seem to be making expensive noises under the hood. <laughs> and a Bugatti, I think we all can, but I also think that a Packard Hawk is really cool. And uh, weird stuff like an Edwards America or a Vignale Cunningham, you know, I, I, I wish I could own all of them and drive all of them. Uh, don't we all? Well, let's go back in time a little bit. I would like you to share a story with me that instigated your passion for cars. Is there a pivotal moment as you remember it when you really realized or you said to yourself, I am a car guy? No, there never was such a moment. (laughs) Never. It's just always been there. Mm -hmm. My family was not into cars at all. 
I mean, they were, they were just a means of transportation. We lived in Washington, D.C. in the early 60s, and we had this black 51 Chevy hardtop with red upholstery, mm-hmm. and it was our number two car. And it was big and tall and round and very different from the other cars on the road that had fins and chrome and were, you know, new and blingy at the time. It had a three-speed transmission, and when that broke, my dad sold the car for $10. <laughs> wow. And I pleaded with him, you know, please fix it, you know, but of course it would cost $25 to fix the transmission, so that was a no-brainer. <laughs> and then he got a brand-new cream-colored Volkswagen hmm. as the number two car, and it was terribly trendy at the time and European and minimalistic and all of that in 1964. Mm-hmm. But I was 10 years old, and I loved that old Chevy, you know. You know, I've always been into older cars. I mean, I would drive around the parking lots in Washington and and uh, look at some of the relics that were left over. I mean, there was this guy in an apartment building close to us. He had a what I now know would be a 1934 Cadillac V12 convertible sedan. And I thought that car was just the coolest thing. And then back in Europe, you know, my like I said, my family, they weren't into cars at all. So... I spent years being carsick on the back seat of a Ford Cortina, which was a really nasty car. <laughs> With cars, I mean, one must also realize that not all of them are worth preserving, you know. Good burgundy gets better with age, and some cars just don't. <laughs> and I saw some years ago that somebody had restored one in exactly the same color, and all the memories sort of, um, sort of came back. When I was a student, this was 1973, two. Mm-hmm. I tried to buy a Porsche convertible, and then after that, I tried to buy a Studebaker Gran Turismo Hawk, and they were both really rusty and cost about $1,000. I thought that made perfect sense, but my family and my mom and dad, they didn't think that made any sense at all, so uh, <laughs> I, didn't get any, uh, <laughs> I didn't get any of those cars. Well, Peter, I would like to take a look at some of the roads you've driven down. Talk a little bit about a huge challenge or a great failure you faced in your career, or maybe something that had to do with a car. But the most important part of this has to do with how you overcame that situation and what did it teach you so you could move forward. I think that closing down the music company, that was, after all those years of hard work, that was that was really no fun at all. Mm-hmm. I guess I was a bit bitter about that for a while, but... I also realized that no one has a special permit from on high to be successful in everything. Yes. (laughs) And the world does not owe you a living. So you just have to move on. At that point, I also decided that the time in my life where I had to be in the same place every morning and go to work was over. Uh, I wanted freedom. I I didn't want employees anymore. I didn't want to maintain an office or all, all of that stuff. So my partner, Ben Erickson, and I, we started up this translation company, and it has the huge advantage that you can manage it and conduct the work anywhere in the world so long as you have an internet connection. Mm, yes. So I think I am now what is called the digital nomad. Yes. <laughs> I think that's the word, and I'm very, very comfortable with that. So if you had a takeaway from that situation to... Share with a listener out there that might be going through the same thing. Maybe they just lost their job. Maybe for no reason of their own, their business had to fold up. Who knows what it might be? What would be a takeaway that you could give them some encouragement and some inspiration? Well, I think it's too simple to just, you know, get up off the ground and keep on slogging. I mean, that's the simple answer. But I think the more complicated answer is that 
you need to think very carefully about what your resources are and, and what you're able to do. I mean, my old education in language was basically 30 years old or something like that, but I dusted it off and, uh, you know, said, you know, well, no, this is something we can do. And, and we plunged right into it, you know, yeah. and, and I mean, it was, we had no idea whether we would get the work that we now, now we're trying to sort of fend customers off so, so. <laughs> nice position to be in i think a lot of this too has to do with where we are now with technology because here we are talking it's 10 o'clock 10 15 in the evening and 25 in the evening where i am on the west coast it's 7 7 25 in the morning for me but we're sitting here having a conversation uh, inspiring other people talking about cars and uh, you know even five years ago this would have been uh, somewhat difficult for me to do just sitting yeah. here on my own so I think that's another part of it for old guys like us, and I'll speak for myself, but we're probably about the same age, is uh, embrace this new technology and step into it and use it. It's also a bit difficult. I mean, I don't know what it's like in America with this, but in Europe, we're having huge political issues concerning Uber and Airbnb mm -hmm. because they are now impacting traditional industries. The hotels are are feeling the crunch and the, the traditional taxi driver, taxi Companies are feeling the crunch. Right. And the politicians seem to be unable to find a workable solution. So, you know, I, I like, I think all technologies throughout history, a lot of these things are turning out to be, you know, double edged swords. I personally have to confess that I don't have much sympathy for the hotels or the cab companies. But that's because I went through what they're going through in the music industry mm -hmm. uh, 15 years ago. Exactly. Because we were the first industry to sort of, how do I say it, go under because of the Internet or at least fundamentally change into something completely different than what it was. Right. And nobody was there helping us. You know, nobody was going to sort of do government subsidies to keep the music industry alive. So I can't mobilize all that much sympathy yeah, it's the new industrial revolution, in my opinion. That's what it is. And you have to uh, step up and, and ride the boat, you know, otherwise you're going to be left out at sea in a dinghy. So uh, embrace yeah. it and find a, find a way to uh, make it work for you. But at the same time, we're into completely analog old cars, aren't we? Well, that's why we're here. So let's get back to the cars. Yes, let's get back to that. Yeah, well, let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum, I'd love for you to share what I call a career aha moment. It's a time when those Marshall lights come on and light the way, light the path for you for a, a new path that you want to go down. Tell us the step you took to turn that aha moment of yours into a success. Well, I like that you say Marshall lights because they're French, of course. <laughs> that has to be some Sunday, I think it was late winter in 2008, where I made a snap decision to write a book about the Talbot Lago Grand Sport. Mm. For more than 30 years, I've been what you would call, or what the French call, a Talbotiste. <laughs> I like that. We go to Retromobile every year. I've been coming there every year for close to 30 years. And wow. the Talbot Club had a stand there manned by Monsieur Dupont, who was the resource for all things Talbot. It was, it was absolutely wonderful. I restored a T26 Grand Sport in the early 90s, mm -hmm. and I made the mistake of selling that. That was not a good idea. But now I have one of the 25 short chassis cars with a coupe body by uh, Dubois. 
And I had just gotten so fed up with how, because I'd been studying these cars, of course, and so fed up about how everybody in various articles were just repeating each other's mistakes. Mm-hmm. And the trouble is, as you may well know, that if mistakes get repeated long enough, they become the gospel. Yep. So I decided to set it right. And I think that everybody around me, including Ben, thought I was off my rocker and was never <laughs> going to do it and, and all of that. And it took four years. I wanted to do a chassis by chassis history of every single car. And there's 25 short chassis and another five with a slightly longer chassis. Mm-hmm. So I had to hunt up every car and make and contact the owners and uh, make them feel comfortable with giving me information and so forth. Of course, I hadn't done anything before, so a lot of the reactions were sort of, you know, who are you? Right. And because these cars are very rare and also quite expensive, some of the owners were, of course, also wary because wondering, do I have an ulterior motive? Am I... A dealer in disguise, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Right. I mean, there was one owner in particular where it took, I think, close to two years. Oh, to gain some trust. To gain the final trust that allowed me to come and visit the cars and take photographs. And also that the owner, because these cars, one of them had actually was thought lost to the world. Hmm. And the owner opened up the files and let me look at them and let me scan them and so on and so forth. That that took almost two years. And then I, when I published the book, it got very good reviews. And then I was very flattered. And and then the next book about Jacques Sauchik came about because all of these Talbots, they have individual bodies by various coach builders. Mm-hmm. But Sauchik bodied about 11 of these about 30 cars, so about a third of production, with various bodies. They're all different. And I got very interested in, uh, in Sao Cheek, so out of that came the uh, Sao Cheek book that was published in 2012, and that got very good reviews too. So I've been, I've been, I've been very fortunate in that regard. Were those your first two books? Those are my first two books. First yeah. two books? Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm only a sophomore. <laughs> <laughs> So we've got some room for some new things to come out then. Well, I'm working on the book about uh, Figoni. Most people think it's only being going to be about Figoni and Falaschi. By the way, most people say Falaschi. Mm-hmm. The correct pronunciation is Falaschi. Falaschi. Italian. And I know this because the family who knew the man, the Figoni family who knew the man, they called him Monsieur Falaschi. So that is the correct pronunciation. So now... That's a little sort of factoid that's important in your future life, don't you think? Absolutely. Thank you. Next time I speak to somebody about that, I will say it correctly. You can, and you can press them. I'll have your, your voice in my head going, Mark, Mark, you better do this right. The pressure's on. Uh, so now I'm working on that. But of course, it's about Joseph Figoni because he was making cars or designing bodies before Falaschi entered the picture. Mm. And he left in 1951, and there were some years after that where uh, he was also building building car bodies. So so it's about Joseph Figoni. Nice. Can't wait for that. Let's talk a, a brief moment here about your proudest business or career moment. Is there one that stands out for you that you would share with us? Well, that was in June 2012 when uh, Ed Gilbertson, Yes. Who was, that was his last year as uh, chief judge at uh, Pebble Beach. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
when he called me out of the blue, and I was driving onto a ferry coming from Berlin, from Germany to Denmark, and my phone rang, and I took it, and without saying hello, I just yelled, because they were waving us onto the ferry, I yelled, you know, I'm going to lose my connection, so make it quick, <laughs> and, uh, and it was, well, he handled it well, it was Ed, and he said, uh, well, would you like to come and judge uh, Sao Cheek at the Pebble Beach Concours? Mm. And that was sort of a, you know, hand me the smelling salts kind of a moment. I just, I had no idea. Yes. Sao Cheek was the uh, featured coach builder at Pebble Beach in 2012. I remember it well, yes. Yeah, and like I said, in, in the Talbot Lago book, there was a chapter about Sao Cheek. And in April, I had been asked to proof the South Cheek article for the Pebble Beach Concours program. And that article had quite a lot of mistakes. And I was really sort of intimidated by the whole thing because I felt, you know, they are Pebble Beach and I am just little old me. Mm -hmm. But then I thought, hey, you know, I'm in Denmark, so uh, so what can they do to me? So 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 I <laughs> I leveled some quite sharp criticism on the article and I thought, you know, to hell with it. And then Pebble got back to me in a very enlightened manner and said, well, you know, we want to be excellent in every way, so would you please correct and proof the article, which I did. And then I basically forgot about the whole thing until uh, Ed Gilbertson called me. And, uh, of course, I said, yes, I would like to come. And we were sort of flying back and booking tickets. And we'd never, you know, we were greenhorns, so that was you know, wet behind the ears. Mm -hmm. But when I got there, everybody was incredibly nice and supportive and helped me out. I remember one fellow judge said, you know, we have to do this and we do it very well and we concern ourselves very deeply about the cars, but don't forget to have fun. Yes, yes. And then, of course, I ended up in a judging team with Richard Adato and Malcolm Harris and we ended up judging the car that was best of show. Nice. Yes. And that was sort of a John Wayne kind of a moment, you know, uh, walking into the saloon, <laughs> you know, from zero to 100 miles an hour in like three seconds. And now this year is going to be my, my fifth year of judging. Nice. And it's, uh, it's sort of changed my life. Since then, I've been invited to become a judge at the Chantilly and uh, at Schloss Dick. I've gotten to know an incredible amount of fantastic people. But there was never a sort of grand master plan for this whole thing. I've been very, very lucky, I feel. But still, I mean, people have been very, very supportive of me. A lot of great uh, nuggets there you've dropped. One thing I will say, and I just wrote my weekly blog about luck, and that being, of course, uh, Seneca, that uh, great philosopher who said, uh, there is no luck. Basically, luck is when preparation and uh, opportunity collide, and I think that's exactly what happened for you. This is true. This is, uh, this is true, but you also have to be prepared to grab the ball. Exactly, and that's the idea of preparation and being ready. And you mentioned two great people that have been past guests here, Ed Gilbertson, uh, who I've known for many years, has been a guest here on Cars Yaz, and Richard Adato, who lives up here in the Pacific Northwest. I'll be judging with Richard this year. We're doing uh, post-war Delahaye. There you go. Oh, there you go. Fantastic. I've had Several judges from Pebble Beach and various shows uh, as guests here, including my first female guest, Diane 
Brandon, who's a Bentley Rolls Royce judge. I think this will be her 23rd, 24th year this year. So, uh, yeah. shout outs to all those uh, alumni, which you're now part of here at Porch. Yeah. <laughs> I still feel I'm a bit of a greenhorn. Hey, you're getting there, buddy. I think you're doing just fine. But that's fine. And I've also sort of made up my mind that as, as long as there is a ticket for the roller coaster, I intend to take every ride. Yes. Let's have a little bit of fun here and go back in time and talk about your first really special car. That first car that you got, it really had some meaning to you. And maybe you can share a memory with that vehicle. Well, uh, the first car I ever drove when I was 16 was a, was a Ford A, and that didn't go very well. <laughs> um, I mean, I'd like to say that it was one of the fancy cars I've owned, but what it really was was a 1973 Ford Cap- Ford Capri 2.6 nice. V6 GT. Ooh, even better. And I bought that when I was on the Fulbright Scholarship at Brown in Providence. And it was red and had a black vinyl roof and a black vinyl interior and sort of full Ford plastic instrumentation and plastic wood on the dash and and a four-speed, and uh, and it was great. I mean, uh, it went really well. It had a European engine, and it had a leaf spring rear axle and a loose rear end that you could kick out when you wanted to. Right. And uh, I had a hoot driving that car, and uh, but it used leaded gas. And the only company that had leaded gas in Providence at the time, that was Sunoco. This was before apps and iPhones. Of course. <laughs> so I had a map uh, in the uh, in the glove compartment where the Sunoco stations were. Nice. Because uh, <laughs> that was the only place I could I could gas the car. But hey, I bought it for seven hundred dollars and I drove it for a year, and I sell, sold it for seven fifty. Ah, there you go. So uh, what more could you want? You know, I I guess it was a car dealer back then. The car that I kept all these years is a, is an AC Cobra Mark IV that I bought in 1986. Oh, my. Okay. And that car's been – I mean, there's been a lot of cars that have come and gone, but this one has stayed. They were built by a company called Autocraft in England who owned the AC brand, and they had the original bucks for the cars. It's not, of course, an, a Cobra from the 60s, but it's also not a replica because it doesn't try to be – one of the earlier Cobras. It's an AC Mark IV. Mm-hmm. And it's also recognized by the club. And this right. year I've had it for 30 years. And it's a mellow marriage kind of a thing. Wow. It's a fantastic combination of the small block engine in the big chassis. It's got no side pipes, no stripes, no rollover bar. But it doesn't overheat like the 7 liters. And it loves curvy roads. And yeah, I don't know if I think readers or listeners will will recognize this. I mean, you know, there's some cars that just can't wait to turn around and bite you in a certain part of your body if you make a mistake. <laughs> well, the AC is just always on my side, you know. And on a sunny day, what 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 more would you want? Wonderful, ah, lovely cars. I like the fact too that it's not all tarted up as we would call it, just simple, clean, and uh, yeah. straightforward. How about the one that got away? And I think I. You mentioned earlier the car that you let go that you shouldn't have sold, but is there one car? And let's and let's take money out of the equation because it doesn't matter right now. It's just about emotion, okay? Yeah. Well, the answer to that is all of them. I mean, <laughs> of <laughs> I course, mean, of course. Except maybe, except maybe for the Bizzarini, but I'll get to that one. Okay. The Maserati Ghibli is a great classic. It's got a sweet engine, good steering, gearbox, clutch. You can see out of it. You don't get cooked. You don't go deaf. It's got good luggage space. It's just a great car. Uh, 
the Maserati 5000, that, that, that was something very different and beautiful and, and very powerful. There are a lot of people who say that the V8 engine, the 5000 engine and the Ghibli engine are alike. And they don't know what they're talking about. It's, it's two completely different engines and they share no parts. Mm. Uh, the Fassel 2 was stunning. The Duesenberg and the ESO were beautiful, although n- neither of those drove particularly well. But, but, mm-hmm. but that's you know, another thing. But the Bizzarini, I mean, I, I'd like to tell this story because I, I might be stepping on some toes here, but the Bizzarini is fantastic to look at. It's sort of long, low, and sexy, mm-hmm. but they are nasty cars, and the only people who really like them are the ones who've never had one. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> well, it's a race car. Yeah, it is. There is a thing about race cars, and that is that they are designed to go fast, on a very flat surface where everybody else is going in the same direction. And Giotto Bizzarini, he's a professor of aerodynamics, and he designed the Bizzarini as a Le Mans car. And it does go fast, straight, very, very well. I mean, it's got no wind noise. You never see a bug on the windshield because they get deflected. And you don't have to use the wipers when it rains because the water is also blown off. Mm-hmm. But in traffic, the car is just impossible because you can't see out back, and unlike a, a Countach, if you're backing the car up, you can't flip up the doors because it's got normal doors. Mm-hmm. And it has a front engine where the two rear cylinders are actually are inside the cockpit. Oh, yeah. So you get completely roasted. I mean, the ventilation system will give you hot air, more hot air, and an enormous amount of hot air. <laughs> yeah, the engine is way mounted way back on those cars. So you're best driving a Bizzarini naked in Finland in the winter, <laughs> you know. <laughs> oh, goodness. Well, I know right now you're working as far as current projects on a 1971 Stutz split, split <laughs> window. Is that right? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, whenever I mention it to people, I sort of roll their eyes and and uh, start grabbing for the 8-track cassette and think of Elvis Presley and great... Graceland and deep fried peanut butter sandwiches and <laughs> yes. stuff like that. But you should think Virgil Exner and Revival Car and Mercer Cobra and the Bugatti 101 Roadster. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a story. I mean, in 1963, Virgil Exner published an article in Esquire called Revival Cars, where he proposed what would cars or a, a car look like if this manufacturer was still in business today. Okay. So he designed a Packard, he designed a Jordan Playboy, he designed a Pierce Arrow, a Duesenberg, and a Bugatti, and the Stutz. And out of all these cars, the, the, the Mercer Cobra was built as a one-off. It's been seen at Pebble Beach. It's white and sort of inspired by a 540K. Mm-hmm. And the Bugatti 101 Roadster was built for Exner himself. It's blue that's also been shown at Pebble. And the Stutz was the only one that went into production. And the first 25 cars are true to external design. When you see them, you will see that they look like the Mercer Cobra and the Bugatti Roadster. Mm. And what they did was they bought a Pontiac Grand Prix, shipped it to Italy, threw everything away except the platform, and then built a body from scratch, hand-built. I mean, even the instruments are Maserati instruments. It was built at Padana that built Maseratis under contract. And 
after these 25 cars, they discovered they were selling them in America for $30,000 a pop, and they were losing $10,000 a car. <laughs> sure. And then they sort of discovered, uh, this is maybe not a good business model. You think? <laughs> so, so after that, they decided to use the substructure of the donor car and hang sheet metal on that, which means that it's got the GM glass and, of course, the A-pillar and the door and all the rest of it is the fundamental GM shape with the different sheet metal hung on it. So after these first 25 cars, they, it then became the studs that everybody knows. Mm -hmm. And I know this is a very long-winded story, but I've, I've actually wanted one of these for a long time. And I, there's only 14 left, and five of them will, for various reasons, not go on the market. And uh, so when I saw one on Craigslist in California, I bought it. I had, a, I had a restoration company come out and look at it, but they were either in cahoots with the seller or d were drunk or something. <laughs> so when we got the car, the only thing holding it together was the paint. Oh, goodness. And we drove 200 yards and then threw the right front wheel. Gives rather a bang when you're sitting inside it. Yeah, I think so, yeah. So now it's six years later, but it's going to be the best one in the world once I'm done. <laughs> Totally, totally upside down financially in this car forever. <laughs> Labor of love. That's it. There you go. Yeah. So. Yeah. How many listeners out there are nodding their heads right now? A lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> I think they're more shaking them and thinking that I'm a nutcase, which is true. No, no. We all here at Cars yeah understand the passion. Here's a very introspective question for you, Peter. If you were a car, what kind of car would you be and why? I would be a Talbot Lago T26 Grand Sport. Okay. For sure. <laughs> For sure. It's a direct descendant of the pre-war T150 CSS chassis that was fitted with the famous Figoni teardrop body that I think most people know. But the Grand Sport after the war, it was bespoke, it was powerful, it was exclusive, it was fast. And it was also incredibly outdated at the time. So it's a lot like me. I'm outdated too. I'm not on Facebook. I read books. I don't read Kindle. I, I like to think I'm unique and bespoke. <laughs> I think so. In fact, I know so. Well, I just wish sometimes that somebody would give me a ground-up restoration. I mean, you know, I have <laughs> a bit too much patina these days, so maybe a new coat of paint and some new chrome, that would, <laughs> that would help. I'm afraid, my friend, you've got to do that yourself. So uh, yeah, true. join true. the club, join the club. Well, Peter, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsors. If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over, congratulations. You're ahead of most people. But what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy, too. Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimble.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member, Finra Sipic. Okay, Peter, we are back, and we're entering the last lap, and I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So you ready? Yep. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? Well, a good friend of mine, since we're not billionaire collectors who can afford to buy and keep and buy and keep, 
He said to me, there are many cars in the world and you have to have some of them before you die. And I agree with that. So in order to have something new, I have to sell something old. Mm-hmm. It's, some, it's a bit depressing sometimes to see how some of the cars I've had have sort of doubled and tripled and quadrupled in value. But I have owned them and enjoyed them. And I'm thankful, even though I can't afford to buy them back, I'm thankful for the time that I had these cars in my garage. Absolutely. You were a great caretaker. Will you share one of your personal habits that you believe has helped contribute to your success over the years? I would say never take no for an answer in the politest possible way. Mm. Especially when writing books, you persevere, persevere, persevere. Yep. Uh, with the Figoni book, only a couple of weeks ago, I got some crucial archive material that I've been hunting for more than three years. Wow. And they will change a number of things. In the, it also means I can throw away two months of work, but that's wow. just too bad. <laughs> Never take no for an answer, but do it in the politest possible way, and then you will get through to the elusive owner. You will find the elusive car. You will get the elusive piece of information. Absolutely. Now, how about a resource? I know there are a lot of resources out there, but is there one in particular that you found that you enjoy that you think the Cars Yacht listeners would enjoy as well? Well, there's old uh, oldmotor.com. It's a great site for history and period images. Mm-hmm. It's got to be careful. It's kind of a drug. I mean, once you get in there, you can spend hours <laughs> yeah. just hopping around from this to that, you know, and it doesn't stop. Now, how about a book? I know we talked about your books, and I'll certainly list those for our uh, listeners. I'll list them on your website page at Cars yeah. But is there another book that you've read recently that you think our Cars yeah listeners would enjoy? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think others have said this. I mean, there are Simon Moore's Alpha books, which are crucial, and they were an inspiration for the Talbot Lago book mm-hmm. uh, because of the chassis by chassis histories. But there's also Griffith Borgeson's uh, incredible book about Aaron Love and Cord. Mm. It's called Aaron Love and Cord, His Empire, His Motor Cars. Mm-hmm. And his biographical approach to Cord, Mr. Cord, was my inspiration for the South Cheek book and the Figoni book that I'm doing now. Nice. Great resources. Well, listeners, you can find all these great resources on Peter's very own show notes page at carsyad.com slash Peter Larsen, and that's L-A-R-S-E-N. There's also a great place on the Cars Yacht website called Guest Recommended Books, where these books and all the past 569 Guest Now's books are listed for quick, easy clicks to buy. All right, Peter, we are up to the checkered flag. And this last question, to name a car you've owned before, can be a real doozy. If you could have only one collector car in your garage... But money's no object. I'll buy you whatever you'd want, but you can't sell and buy a bunch of other cars with, so that little trick's off the table. What would that vehicle be, and more importantly, why? Well, that would be the Talbot Lago T150 CSS teardrop, not by Figoni, but by Portu. Ooh, okay. Uh, they only built three of them. It's, it's on one of the greatest pre-war sports racing chassis. And it's possibly the sexiest body of all time. Everybody admires the Figoni, and I do too. I mean, I'm writing a Figoni book. He's one of the greatest coach builders of all time. But the lesser-known Portu style was designed by Georges Paulin, who also designed the Embiricos Bentley and the Peugeot Darlmat Roadsters. Mm. And it has design elements of both of them while being completely unique. Wow. Portu is an underrated coach builder, and 
The T150 CSS is, is a great drive. The faster it goes, the better it gets. Mm. And um, so that's what I would be. Well, you picked a quite a special car. That's going to cost me a bloody fortune. But you that's, betcha. Th- that's you okay. Betcha. That's okay. I, actually, the three that exist, I don't think they're for sale for any price, actually. Well, we're living in fantasy land today, tonight, yes. this morning. So we don't worry about that too much. I'm more interested in the car you would choose. And you certainly have chosen a very special car, very rare car, very unique car. Nobody here on Cars Yeah in the past 569 guests have chosen that car. So uh, I like your originality. Does that mean maybe I can get one? Oh, of course, of course. I, just let me know where I need to ship it to, and uh, it's on its way. So I've got connections all over the world, so don't worry. Sure. That car's on its way. Peter, you have taken me on a wonderful ride today. I knew you would. I really enjoyed learning more about you and your stories, and I want to thank you for sharing your journey with cars with the Cars Yeah listeners. Could you offer us one parting piece of guidance before you drive off from the sunset in that Taubo Lago T150 CSS by Porto? Portu. 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 <laughs> My French is horrible. I apologize. My advice is don't be a lemming. Mm. Don't worry about what other people think and don't necessarily always believe the hype. Mm-hmm. I mean, these days I see too many people flocking towards just a few specific models and marks. And the result is that on those cars, the prices have gone to a level where the car itself can probably never deliver anything that remotely corresponds to what the cost was. Right. And not every car with a horse on the hood is a great car. Not every Porsche is a blast. Both companies have made some dogs along the way. I think people think that I'm perfectly nuts to be restoring this, uh, this Stutz, but I don't care. I mean, so, so, so do your homework. Think out of the box. Consider cars that not everybody else is looking for. You can get rarity and excitement and beauty and, and great driving for a lot less than you think if yes. you know where to look. So if an AMC Pacer is what turns you on, go for it. Yeah, great advice. And is there a way for listeners to learn more about you? I know you mentioned you're a little bit antiquated when it comes to the web and so forth, but is there a way for our listeners to learn more about you? Well, yeah, I, I have a car website for my book writing and car dealings, which is called Autostar. It's A-U-T-O dash star. Yes. Dot E-U. Great. Awesome. Well, listeners, again, you can find links to everything that Peter shared with us today on his very own show notes page at carsyeah.com. Just type Peter, but I would put his last name, Larson, in the box because Peter's the most popular name here on Cars Yeah. I have had many, many Peters on here on Cars Yeah. So make sure you type Larson in there and that page will pop right up with links. Peter, thank you again for being so generous today with your time and your expertise and for calling in all the way from Copenhagen, although I feel like I'm sitting in my living room with you here, which is great fun. I want to thank you for sharing your experiences with the listeners. Until we talk again, I'll see you down the road. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. And we'll see you at Pebble Beach this summer, too. Yes, we will. All right. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!